Hello, everyone. It's your host, Noah, for Debate 101 on the THW podcast. I'm here to let you know about our survey, which is currently linked in our IG bio. Again, our app for IG is at THW Debate Podcast. Uh, we really would like if you filled out this survey. It will really help us out and figure out the demographics of who's listening, about what kind of experience or information our viewers would like to know about, and it helps us create a product that better suits what you guys are interested in learning about. So please let us know. Do you want to have content that is more related to the high school circuit or the university circuit? Do you want me to tell more jokes? Do you want Nicole to tell more jokes? Do you want to hear about more serious material? These are all incredibly useful pieces of feedback and we'd love to hear what you guys think so that we can keep on producing stuff that is the most helpful for you. Of course, we would also appreciate if you fill out feedback on the other series as well, uh, but it really helps us out and me especially knowing what kind of content you guys would like to know about. Our survey closes in just five days, so please take a look at that survey. Again, it is linked on our Instagram bio at THW Debate Podcast, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to the Debate 101 series of This House Wood. Today, Noah and I will be continuing our interesting conversation with Ethan Fortes on increasing accessibility in debate. So just a quick recap on what we talked about previously. We discussed the general trend of private institutions and academies and the general move away from a debate system that is more cooperative, a debate system that acts more like a community. And we also discussed about the detriments of competition in the debate system. So today, we would love to continue this conversation with Ethan. But first, Noah, would you like to talk to us a bit about how your university is tackling this problem right now? So something that Hardhouse does actually that I think is a good practice because we've had long-standing issues with this burnout, with competition strangling people out. I remember that um, by my third year, there were only two people in third year in the club and only two people in fourth year in the club, and it was just first and second years because everybody else was like, "I don't want this." Um, some a lot of the changes we did were to have a more community-oriented club. So. For socials, for example, that meant having more dry socials and having more variety and like location and hours. But even just in the club, we started having community CP case files, which actually I know some universities never stop doing. Um, Queens, I know, has cases that they hand down forever. Yet at U of T, and I'm sure is the case at many universities, was not something that was always done. Um, and more than that, I think that it's a version of the argument handing down that you talk about um, where people don't think that they value an argument that's handed to them unless it's handed to them by somebody who has a lot of clout, but really an environment where you share what was the case that you ran and you don't think about what's wrong with it or what's better. You think about like, how could I use it? Uh, that's, I think, a club environment that allows people to engage in competition in a healthy way. Um, and in a way that's focused on growth as opposed to achievement. You know, that's a really interesting point. And in some ways I agree, but I also kind of have some concerns about that. I really don't think that the answer to what 
the debate communities of uh, you know across the country need right now is going to come from like a bunch of elite debaters that are going to decide oh we're going to just make our case files open and like let people see them because the truth is first of all the clout issue that you com- that you bring up which i think is really important we do see a huge amount of like um, consolidation of power in the form of clout socially in debate and that you know people who have never broken at a tournament before really feel like a whole second class citizen and I think that that is not addressed when you know um, competitive clubs release their materials for people to use because the, I don't think it's a good thing for people to say that an argument is good because a really competitive debater said it I think that people need actually more than anything debate practice and they need practice in an environment that's non-competitive where you don't have like elite debaters owning the room on the basis of the fact that they are just like worlds more experienced than everybody else. I would like to see more open and accessible debate practices happening in communities like organically and uh, based on the needs of debaters who are, you know, often left behind by this system. But I feel like with the problem of competitiveness, though, there are going to be certain people that go into, like, tournaments just for, like, the medals, like, to win and stuff. So how are you going to not so much combat that, but how are we supposed to integrate people like them into a community, like a system that is more collaborative? It's a pretty heavy question to be honest because we know that like the most competitively successful debaters in the country are in many ways the backbone of the debate community they're usually the ones who end up convening or seeing tournaments who do a lot of the judging etc etc and that's not in any way to discredit the contributions that they make to the community but i do think that the competitive tone that a lot of people bring to practice meetings, especially when they're prepping for Worlds or prepping for some, you know, international title tournament, can often suppress or dampen people's willingness to take risks in round. They don't want to come across stupid, they don't want, or <laughs> not a good word, but like, will cut and say they don't want to come across as ignorant or bad at debate because they want to make a good impression on people who they think are, you know, important in the community. So I think that we should be thinking about creating spaces for new and younger debaters to practice with each other with, you know, coaches and with experienced debaters uh, coming in to help, but not with a sense of like, oh, well, this is just another practice round that I can use to like prep for a big HST coming up. Yeah. And I think that's a really big issue that I've seen almost jeopardize some spaces before that were really good about being open spaces where people can take risks. So I've seen uh, at Heart of Summer meetings, which are traditionally open well, they're all, hardest meetings are always open, but they're like open, open in summer for high schoolers, especially after um, their finals in June. And, you know, they'll come, they'll practice, they'll try out new partners, they might do some pro-ams. Um, and a lot of people are there focused mainly on improvement as opposed to results, but also um, are there with an open mind that they won't know everybody that they hit. Um, not always the case, but often it's the case. But I've seen spaces like this get jeopardized when people around August are like, oh, well, I got to practice for the world's trial. And I'm like, buddy, what do you, what do you think you're getting practice for for the world's trial? 
in a room that's supposed to be for high schoolers that are learning. Not only is it not actually productive for you, which is not the main concern, but not only is it not productive for you, but it's actually taking a space that wasn't designed for you, um, taking a space that was supposed to be primarily growth-oriented, and putting that and letting it be that space. I also think that's a big issue with how judging happens in these environments, as well as at high school tournaments. You know, another fantastic point there, because summer meetings that are held between, you know, often, you know, two nearby universities, um, they offer an immense potential that should not be uh, um, sacrificed for the sake of of more competitive prep. You know, competitive debaters are really good at finding and creating opportunities to practice. And, you know, we should not consider that every debate practice space is meant for people who are competing for, you know, uh, world's prelims or whatever. Um, You know, I started out at UBC as a bottom-of-the-tap novice. I just didn't I was not at the level that other students were at at that moment, and I didn't get opportunities on that basis. The fact that I, you know, could not compete at tournaments that were funded because I didn't have enough points to uh, to be selected, um, this kept me, you know, without debate practice opportunities. Um, and we all know that, like, debate competitions are way more meaningfully uh, useful for, you know, practicing debate and learning and improving than, um, you know, once a week practice rounds. But what I found is that summer meetings were immensely useful. Summer meetings gave me not only a competitive free space to really just like be myself and, and, and give speeches without fear of judgment, but also gave me the freedom to take risks and try different things. And it's people who attended summer meetings who I saw in my time really transform themselves as debaters and really pick up a whole new style of speaking that I just don't think a ultra-competitive culture in debate can really foster. And something that I want to add here about these kind of social, more social spaces, more informal spaces that are more designed for people to take risks as opposed to just compete, um, I I think this network of being able to meet up with people and just practice, these low stakes practices are actually something that even competitive debaters have and value, even if they don't realize it. Because that's what all of these like online practice sessions before the pandemic were about, that people were hosting on Skype or on Messenger, where they just gather people across universities. So it's not really a new idea. And it's not even a new idea for people that want to be competitive. It's just that access to these rooms has always been really gated by clout. Um, I think people take the same attitude towards these rounds as they do for their like warm-up days at Worlds when they arrive the day before, um, even though it's more of a laid-back learning round. And that, I think, is... I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong or nuance me if I'm unnuanced, but I think that's what you're getting at, is that that barrier of hierarchy into accessing these already existing social networks um, and that deterioration of really not having any clout gating it. That's a big barrier that you see. Well, that we all see. What about like judges though? Do you think like they also kind of increase this problem of clout? Like how can we leverage judging and help, you know, to build a community essentially? Fantastic question. Honestly, judges are really the backbone of the debate community. And the fact that like for most 
you know, high school debaters, for them, their coach is their judge for prep, for like tournament prep. And then the whoever gets, whoever's chairing their round, like usually also is a coach uh, at a private academy or an experienced, you know, teacher with debate judging experience. But I think that that's not sufficient. The current state of debate communities across the country really leaves judges as an afterthought, which is ridiculous because what are we even doing? What are we doing if our judges are not like qualified in every round to, you know, critically think and analyze? I think I hear a lot of, I mean, a lot of disrespect toward parent judges, which is to me like so offensive because parents not only volunteer their time, they're also bankrolling the entire private market of debate coaching. And we should be, you know, mindful to, to the extent that if we ask them to participate as judges, we shouldn't just be putting parents as panelists and being like, well, they probably don't understand it anyway. So they'll just like nod along with the chair. I think that is something that we need to pay more attention to. And parents should be taught how to judge. There should be judging seminars hosted for parents once in a while, not just, you know, a judge briefing for an hour that really goes over all the jargony, you know, ways to 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 fill out a ballot. That's not enough. I think parents also should be participants insofar as they want to be. And we should teach parents how to judge because then they'll have a better idea of what their kids are even up to. Alberta was um, pretty much an exclusively parent-judged circuit, at least when I was there. Um, teachers almost never judged. There were very few university judges at anything other than university tournaments, which, you know, is its own issue. But it was mostly parent-run. And sure, there were some parents that didn't really know how to judge, that didn't get... Um, sufficient explanation that never really were taught but some of the most excellent judges uh, were were the parent judges who were better than many of the few teachers or the um adsa members that judged um, and there were parent judges that were competent at exp deciding rounds competent at providing feedback uh, many of whom had never done the activity before and one thing I really want to add about judges is that, like I mentioned before, debating is a, is a community activity. And in order to have good debate, you have to have a strong, thriving debate community. What does that look like? It doesn't look like a few volunteer judges who are experienced university debaters chairing all the top rounds and, you know, like putting parents in bin rooms or whatever. Um, that is not the solution. And the solution is not going to be incremental. Oh, we'll just pay judges, you know, for their time. Again, the financialization and economization of debate isn't helping. It may, there's no, you can't pay someone a judge a, re, a fair rate to s spend their whole day judging at a tournament. It's simply not feasible. If you were to actually ask debaters what would be a fair price for their time, it wouldn't be possible. Then why can we even ask people to participate? And that's because what you're doing is you're not gaining a benefit for yourself. You're investing in the future community. So university judges should be not burnt out in the first place. That's the first thing, is that the problem is we have burnout, which is limiting people's ability. The same way that, you know, a lot of people don't protest political issues because they're burnt out from a 40-hour work week, that kind of thing. But I also think that we need to consider judges not as, you know, a hierarchical, qualified person who has more experience and knows more things, but rather just, because here's the irony, we tell people to treat the judge like a reasonable, informed voter without any spec knowledge and, 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 and wisdom about the world. 
But at the same time, we only ever put judges who are extremely competitively successful and accomplished and seen as qualified to judge around. But we should be like we should be meeting, we should be honest about what we expect of our judges. So I think one, we need to have more parent judges and parents should be taught how to judge in a more conscious and mindful way. And secondly, we also need to teach debaters how to judge as well. I notice across almost every debate experience that I've had is that if a debater is asked to judge, it's seen as them being like relegated from and like, you know, not playing dodgeball, they're like sitting out, right? And I think that that is an attitude we need to address directly. Because people who take a year off to judge, and I think, Noah, you can maybe comment on this. Like people who take time off to judge become better debaters almost all the time. Judging is an activity in and of itself, which is worthwhile doing. And it's not like a volunteer, like, oh, I'll judge. We should change people's perceptions of judging for the better. And that can make debate far more inclusive. You can even imagine debaters running their own rounds without coaches. It would be, it would be, it would completely subvert the entire hierarchies that are holding debate back from what it could be. Yeah, totally. I, when I started university, um, so first of all, I never had to judge in my first year pretty much until like Hard House IV, I judged for the, um, I judged at the tournament and pretty much when I asked like, oh, how do you judge? They're just like, oh, well, you'll just be paddling. So don't worry about it. You'll pick it up, which is like, you know, you, you do pick it up, but you don't have any tools to do anything other than passively learn, right? Which is not what a judge should be. It, a judge shouldn't be somebody that passively sits by. Um, and then again, at Hardest High Schools, where we literally had one judge per room because we had the exact mathematical number we needed. So everybody was a solo chair. Um, and you had like me who had judged five rounds before all of them at Hart House IV, um, trying to give feedback to high school debaters. So that doesn't work. And I have had to learn judging entirely just through osmosis with no formal attempts to educate me. But compare that now to the generation that Hart House has, where we spent a lot more investing in judge training, um, although still my year hasn't spent enough. But we have really excellent high school debaters. Uh, so I guess I there's no way to not name drop this because we know who this person is. But like Eric Zhao, who, who was very good in high school already, won Hart House High Schools, did you know pretty good for a novice, and then didn't make the cut for Worlds in second year. So he judged instead, and he had judged at a bunch of major competitions. And like he made it to a Worlds quarter as a judge. And then... Like this year, he's been top of the tab, winning tournaments nonstop. And this is after basically taking a year on the competitive like back burner. I'm not really debating at anything more competitive than champs, like BB champs, which is like a one of the nationals for people that might not know. But yeah, he's he spent a lot of time judging and he became a lot better. And now that he is club president, he's put a lot of energy into judge training. So he actually had like a judge training seminar for the entire club before Hart has IV. And it was so funny because I was talking with David and we were like, wow, they have judge training. Like back when we were kids, like we were just told like paddle somebody good and then hope that you learn. So it's a huge attitude shift that's already happening. But I see a lot of backwards progress at the same time that we need to fix, right? Like why do we not have judges briefings other than just a Google Doc for online tournaments. Online tournaments are the place where it is free to judge, where it is super accessible. And we are wasting this opportunity and rolling back on judges training by not having full judges briefings. Every debate round that is under judged is a wasted opportunity to improve 
the judging pool of that community. Yeah, completely agree. And I think like another hardship of being a judge is the timing. Because I feel like especially when there's like more judges, then you definitely need to, of course, deliberate with the other judges and then give constructive feedback. But you honestly just don't have enough time to give a lot of constructive feedback. So I think that's definitely something that we should work on as well. And I would like to just say something. This is a message for all the TDs out there who are stressing over their high school schedules. Whatever you do, don't trim feedback time. For every debater, and especially debaters from lower socioeconomic status, the feedback you get from judges after a round is often some of the only feedback you might ever get. And if there is one way to make debate more egalitarian and, you know, give people equal opportunities, it's to not take away judge feedback that could be really, really useful. It's the it's something that we should take very seriously. And the flip side of that, well, not the flip side, but the other side of that, I guess, that we had talked about as we talked a few days ago, is if... There's so much lack of sense of duty to take care of, you know, children that need supervision at a high school tournament, like legal minors who need supervision at a tournament who legally need chaperones to be able to attend often, or a lot of high school tournaments just decide they don't care for some reason. It's, It's not like you can't have that duty as like, you know, people should be a point of contact for people who are unattended, like you pair up members uh, you pair up even like novice judges who can take off rounds if they, if you have more than you need. There's so many ways that you can account for chaperoning, and all that that requires is making sure that people have time to do chaperoning instead of just like constantly giving feedback, constantly moving from round to GA to round. Not having dead time is the exact thing that allows for lack of supervision and lack of people to report issues. And, you know, setting aside just if there was an actual issue, not having a chaperone, not having somebody that can be like a supervisor whose time is dedicated to making sure that you're just doing something safe, which is, you know, a legal responsibility. That is a huge bonus to accessibility for anybody who, first of all, didn't have a teacher or coach that could supervise them for that weekend. Um, anybody who doesn't have parents that are free on the weekends because they're working. And these are people that most often already couldn't access the tournament. You know, I think that a lot of the problems that we're facing overall in the debate communities is that we don't consider that all these issues are interconnected. You know, think about what it would mean to have a public school that has one debater that is assigned to them that goes once a month. I mean, we're talking about, you know, two hours once a month. This would not break the bank. It would not ruin your 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 schedule. You could create a relationship with the students that you work with, even if you only see them once a month. And then when it's high school tournament time and, you know, they're in the GA, you can be their contact and check in on them between rounds and say, hey, how was that round? How did it go? Um, and give them some feedback if they had questions. The judge told me that I took too many POIs. Are there such a thing as too many POIs? And you can explain it to them. I think that it's not, we're not asking to people to completely flip their practices on their head, but just to take a bit more of a conscious approach uh, that the only way debate's going to get more accessible is if we make it more accessible. Exactly. 
I feel like if we all do our part to say chaperone or judge or coach, I think the debate system can be a lot more accessible. And I love that we're having a great conversation so far, but let's just hold our very last thoughts for the last episode of the Debate 101 mini-series with Ethan Fortes. So Ethan, thank you so much for coming once again. Please follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and also our Instagram at THW Debate Podcast. Thank you.